In 2 Samuel chapter 8, if you'll join me there together tonight, as we continue our study through 2 Samuel, we saw last time that David, uh, as the king, was motivated in his heart, had this idea that he wanted to build a house for the Lord, and ultimately found out that though that was not God's plan, an intention for him that God had something much more glorious that he wanted to do for David that far superseded anything that David could ever think about doing for God. And God told David, of course, that he was going to build him a house, referring to that dynasty and how ultimately through David's family line would ultimately come the Messiah, that the Lord Jesus Christ would actually come through the family line of King David and that there would always be someone to reign on the throne of David forever. And in the midst of God giving some of these promises to David and revealing these things to him, which remember just left David speechless and in an attitude of just worship and gratitude and amazement towards the greatness of God, we saw last time in chapter 7 there in verse 10 or 11 it tells us that God in the midst of these promises to David told him that he was going to appoint a place for his people Israel and plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more and then he said this nor the sons of wickedness shall oppress them anymore as previously since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies. So it seems that within this promise of the covenant, the Davidic covenant that was given to David, that uh, God was inferring to David that he was to conquer and to take territory, and that God was going to give him rest and victory over some of the enemies of Israel, uh, those different foreign nations around who had been just continuous enemies, kind of what we call perennial enemies uh, of the people of Israel, the Philistines and some of the other that we'll see tonight and David it seems understanding these things now with an attitude of faith and with a heart of obedience wanting to take God at his word and live out what God says as we come to chapter 8 now tonight it's basically a chapter of a lot of David's advancements militarily and and some of his conquests over the surrounding enemy territories that at times were oppressing God's people and really were taking from the people of God what rightfully belonged to them and and were kind of coming in on occasion and attacking the people of God and were robbing them from experiencing God's fullness in their lives and David now having set up his administration moving forward now uh, as the king of Israel begins to sort of uh, step forward and rather than sort of responding to being attacked and that was often how battles usually would take place thus far as we've been seeing typically the children of Israel would would in a responsive way when they were attacked they would then either defend themselves or, or make an advancement as the result of an attack against them but now we see them sort of going on the offensive and we really find David in chapter 8 here it's just a record given to us of different areas where David conquered, how David went out on military campaigns, conquered different enemies that were against him, 
and against the people of God as he begins to kind of move forward now in his calling. And I think in some ways it's a very beautiful picture for us because there is a part of the Christian experience and of course all of these things we remember in the word of God. We want to look at them from the perspective of seeing Christ and the, the life in Christ that we're supposed to have. And like David here, moving forward, conquering territory, the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 8 as Christians that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And, and there is an element of the Christian experience where, yes, we are to stand in faith and we're to resist spiritual warfare, but the Bible also does tell us that we are to grow and that we're to make advancements, that we're to conquer, that we're to move forward. Uh, uh, Peter, writing in Second Peter chapter 1, says, For this very reason, giving all diligence, listen, he says, add to your faith virtue to virtue knowledge to knowledge self-control to self-control perseverance to perseverance godliness to godliness brotherly kindness to brotherly kindness love for if these things are yours and abound you will not be barren and unfruitful in the things of jesus christ so again peter there very clearly saying giving all diligence add to your faith. The Bible tells us in the book of Jude to build ourselves up on our most holy faith. So as Christians, there is a, a responsibility that we have that we are supposed to seek to move forward. It's a walk. Walk implies progress. And there are areas in all of our lives where we have sort of our own personal enemies, weaknesses of our flesh, maybe enemies that we struggle with in areas of sin or temptation and things that just kind of rob us from what God's will and intention is for our life in its fullness. And we need to not be passive, but at times by faith and obedience and trusting the power of God that's available to us, we need to at times conquer territory in our spiritual lives with the Lord's grace assisting us, of course. And we need to at times advance and move forward and add to our faith. He says so that Peter writes so that we don't become barren or unfruitful. We're supposed to continuously be taking more territory. He speaks of adding knowledge and adding a greater degree of self-control and perseverance and godliness and brotherly kindness. We're to grow in these areas. And at times we have to drive out enemies in our lives to be able to take the territory that God wants us to have in the life of the spirit so in some ways we, we can think of those things as we see David making these conquests here look with me in chapter 8 verse 1 it begins to give us a record and you'll see how David conquers to the west and to the to the south and to the north and to the east and so forth he's just conquering in different directions first he seems to make an advancement towards the west against a very common enemy the Philistines it says verse 1 chapter 8 after this it came to pass that David notice attacked the Philistines. Usually the Philistines were attacking Israel. Now we see David actually not responding to their attack and then advancing in, in sort of a retaliation, but going on the offensive. David seeks now to drive out the conquest uh, of the areas that Philistia had taken from Israel that they weren't supposed to have according to God's plan. So he now goes to the west. He begins to attack the Philistines. Notice, 
and subdue them. The idea is, again, bring them under control. Bring them under subjection. And David took Methagama. Now, we know from other accounts in Chronicles that Methagama is just another name that was given to the area of Gath. And remember, Gath was one of the five, if you would, sort of capital cities of the, the Pentopolis, of kind of how Philistines were, were set up. Remember, there was Gath and, and Ekron and the Ashkelon, the different sort of main cities of these subdivisions of the people of Philistines. So Gath was a walled city city as well this is one of their major cities this was like conquering one of their capitals and conquering a walled city and it says david took methagama or gath from the hand of the philistines so again notice the languages we're going through here attacked subdued took verse two it then says again defeated Th these are are or what David is doing literally in battles and military campaigns. But, but this is what we should be seeking to do spiritually. We shouldn't be passive about areas of sin that are conquering and controlling us when we are supposed to be ruling over our flesh and our flesh is not ruling over us. Paul says the Christian life, he says, sin shall not have dominion over you. Again, the Bible teaches that before we were saved, we had no option. Our flesh did rule us. We had no power to control ourselves. We yielded to the weakness. But the Bible tells us when we came to Christ, that power of sin, not just the penalty, but the power of sin was broken in our lives. So from a biblical perspective, an area of sin does not have to have dominion over our lives. We can conquer. We can have victory through the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. The Bible says that we're not to allow ourselves to be under the dominion of sin, that we are to subdue it. We're to conquer through the power of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit working through our lives and to, in a sense, not be passive when we have struggles with sin, to, to subdue those areas by the power of God helping us. So David now deals with the Philistines. Again, remember, they were just a perennial, constant enemy the giants that came against them and the many attacks, they would take territory from the people of the Lord. And David says, enough of this, enough of them controlling us when we should be in control and have what God intends for us in our lives. And so David launches a campaign, takes territory from them, subdues the Philistines, great victory. Verse two, then it says he turns to the east and he defeats Moab, forcing them down to the ground. He measured them off with a line. With two lines, he measured off those to be put to death and with one full line, those to be kept alive. That seems to be a Hebrew euphemism there to just describe that, that he basically decimated like two-thirds of the people or two-thirds of the, the standing military and for whatever reason chose to spare one-third of the, the Moabite people or one-third of the Moabite military so the Moabites, it says, became David's servants and brought tribute. So he basically subjects them to what we would call to become like what a, a vassal state would be. He forces them now to be under his dominion and he controls the territory now. Again, he takes control of that area and they render tribute to David. They become David's servants instead of David or the people of Israel having to serve them in any way. They now become subservient to David. David is now ruling over them. Now, what's interesting here is that David would do this with Moab because remember, David has a little bit of a connection 
to the people of Moab. If you can just think backwards a little bit, remember to the book of Ruth, David's great-great-grandmother, Ruth, was a Moabitess. So David's family line is connected to the people of Moab. If you remember in 1 Samuel, when we were there, I believe it was chapter 22, when David was pushed out in sort of that wilderness experience where he was living in the cave of Adullam and on the run for 10 plus years, as Saul was hunting him down and trying to destroy him. David at one point, it seems, wanting to provide for his parents and, and their welfare, knowing they couldn't keep up with this kind of Robin Hood experience of running from cave to cave and keeping themselves alive and so forth. It says that David took his parents to the king of Moab and said, can my parents please stay with you? Remember he said, until I see what God will do for me. And that was one of the last things that we have in regards to David's interactions with Moab. So David has this connection to Moab. His, his great-great-grandmother was a Moabite. And then his parents were brought over to Moab. And now David comes and he very severely, we read here in verse 2, at this point historically, very severely attacks and judges them, decimates, it seems, two-thirds of their army. And we almost have to wonder, is, is there a reason behind that? Some historians think that it's possible that David's parents were perhaps murdered or mistreated and this could have been some form of retaliation that David was bringing against them because of that. We don't have biblical record of that, but it would seem to perhaps indicate there was something that took place where David, instead of being peaceable with the people of Moab, judged them very severely here as he drives them out and makes them become subservient to him. Verse 3, it then says, And David defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rahab. So he's now moving northward in his campaigns. He defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rahab, king of Zobah, as he went to recover his territory at the river Euphrates. So it seems as this uh, king goes to recover some territory over near the river Euphrates, David capitalizes on this opportunity in a strategic way and goes and launches an attack, verse 4, and took from him, notice, 1,000 chariots, 700 horsemen, 20,000 foot soldiers, and David hamstrung all the horses, except that he spared enough of them for 100 chariots. Now, when it says David hamstrung all the horses, this was a, a common practice in that day. They would basically cut sort of a, a tendon there. It kind of must be like in, in our human body, like cutting the Achilles a tendon there back by your ankle, which would, would render you uh, quite immobile as far as being able to function the way you typically could. Uh, and, and the purpose of hamstringing a horse uh, to do that, the horse could still move, it could still eat and move around, but it rendered it completely incapable to function properly in warfare. Uh, so this was, you know, this was kind of like going and, you know, pulling a cable on somebody's tank so it wouldn't work anymore. Uh, and this is kind of the idea here because the horses would pull the chariots. So uh, this was something that was done in that day culturally. And so we see David doing this and only sparing enough of them for a hundred chariots for his own use somehow. Verse five, when this defeat happened, it says the Syrians of Damascus, they came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah. So there was some alliance and they thought, hey, let's go and rally over. Maybe we can assist them since David is defeating them. But David, notice, continues to be victorious by God's hand upon his successful campaigns. David killed 22,000 of the Syrians 
And then he put garrisons, or we might say troops. He, he set up troops in that land where he had conquered, uh, kind of like, again, putting some of his own military in the area of Syria in a foreign land to kind of police that area, to be able to control it and stay uh, in control of what would happen in that area. So he put a garrison in Syria of Damascus, and the Syrians also became David's servants and brought him tribute. Verse 6, so the Lord preserved David wherever he went. I have that underlined in my Bible. The same phrase shows up again over in verse 14. The Lord preserved David wherever he went. I think the Holy Spirit purposely interjects that. Uh, it's not that God said it in verse 6, 6 and then when he got to verse 14, God had a mental lapse and accidentally recorded the same thing again. When something's repeated in the Word of God, it's repeated purposefully. Again, we always have to bring ourselves to this remembrance because at times we do find repetition in the word of God. And listen, God's a God of all knowledge, all wisdom. Uh, it's not like he just says, well, I can't think of something new to say, so let me just say the same thing again. Uh, you know, th this book could be way, way larger than what it is, the word of God. So when God repeats something and chooses to repeat something instead of saying something else, it's probably something that's pretty important. And typically the way we learn is what? By repetition, repetition, repetition. And important things are stated more than once to cause us to not overlook them. The idea is I'm saying this again. Please pay attention here to what's being said. And so here two times in the midst of this chapter that just really records historical military campaigns where David's fighting battles. And again, keep in mind, I mean, the warfare in this day, I mean, you're talking hand-to-hand -hand combat, swinging swords like Conan the Barbarian kind of stuff. I mean, this ain't standing far away with a machine gun, you know, uh, uh, you know, hundreds of yards away from each other or launching, you know, missiles uh, across, you know, a half a mile. I mean, this is hand-to-hand -hand running against each other, swords, spears, clubs. I mean, to, to fight this kind of warfare, I mean, it took a tremendous amount of courage. I mean, this was very, uh, you know, gory type stuff when these people engaged in battles. So the, the, the opportunity to be killed, the opportunity to be wounded, you have to understand, was increased dramatically. I mean, dramatically, it was very, very possible when you went into battle that you could lose your life or, or be severely wounded. And so that's why the Bible is telling us battle after battle after battle as David's fighting the Lord's battles, however, key being the Lord's battles. As he's fighting the Lord's battles, though he's on these battlefields, the Lord preserved David wherever he went. As long as he was fighting the Lord's battles, as long as he was in the center of the will of God, it did not matter how bad the odds were against him. It did not matter how threatening the circumstances, how dangerous the situation. The good hand of the Lord remained upon him and the Lord preserved him. The Lord protected him and shielded him from things that could have destroyed him. Other translations say the Lord helped him. Same idea there. The Lord assisted him. The Lord provided protection to him and kept him in what he was doing. And you know, the, the same is true in our lives. If we are outside of the will of God and we are engaging in things that we're not supposed to be involved in and, and we are doing things outside of the Lord's leading or outside of the Lord's will, you could have on three Kevlar vests. 
You could surround yourself with bulletproof glass and do everything you can to try and make sure you're going to be okay. And the reality is that is the most dangerous place to be outside of the will of God. By the same token, you can be in the center of the will of the Lord and be facing the most difficult, dangerous, perilous situations. But if you are fighting the Lord's battles and you're doing what the Lord's leading you to do, he will preserve you, he'll keep you, he'll sustain you, he'll help you in what you're doing. I love when Jesus tells the disciples to get in the boat and cross over to the other side. And as they cross over toward the other side, again, it's not as if Jesus forgot to watch the weather forecast and oops, didn't realize this horrible storm was going to come where they were literally almost drowning in the boat. The reality is, is no, they were right in the center of the will of God when they were in a horrible storm that was threatening their entire existence. But they were right in the center of the will of God. And listen, they were safer in the stormy, dangerous waters they were in, in the center of the will of God, than they would have been sitting dry and comfortable back on the shore. Because that's not where God called them to be. And what a great encouragement. When the Lord's leading you, directing you, guiding you, you can go forward and he'll preserve you. Oh, I don't know. Look, Listen, if the Lord's leading you, he'll preserve you. He'll keep you. He'll lead you through it. He'll give you the help and the success. He'll uphold you and protect you. And you can be confident that the hand of the Lord is going to be upon you and around you and will help you through whatever it is you're going to go forward to. Verse 7, And David also took shields of gold that had belonged to the servants of Hadadazer. So he's now collecting spoils of war and brought them back to Jerusalem, to the capital city. And from Betan, Barathai, cities of Hadadezer, King David also took a large amount of bronze, so he's accumulating now precious metals. And when Toi, or Tai, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated all the army of Hadadezer, then Toi sent Joram, his son, to King David to greet him and to bless him, because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him. For Hadadezer had been at war with him, and Joram brought with him articles of silver and articles of gold and articles of bronze. And what this is picturing here is, again, word is getting out. Boy, the God of Israel is prospering David wherever he's going. And everybody's fallen prey. The Lord is giving David victory against all of his enemies. And so word is getting out. And now those who had been fighting amongst themselves are getting word of this. And they say, hey, before he comes here, uh, let's send an ambassador to offer terms of peace. And that's what this is. Basically, this king here sends his son Joram, verse 10, it says, to King David to greet him and bless him with precious metals of gold and silver and bronze. And the idea is to make a peace treaty because they don't want to be conquered or lose soldiers to David. So they're now, in a sense, sort of just saying, hey, we're glad to be your servants. We can tell that you're going to be victorious over us anyway. So again, they're submitting themselves and yielding to David. So the momentum of his succession is continuing to grow. But look, verse 11, it doesn't seem that the victory and the prosperity goes to David's head in a wrong way at this point because all this gold and silver and bronze is being given to David. But look what it does, verse 11. So David also dedicated these to the Lord along with the silver and gold that he dedicated from all the nations which he had subdued. And then the list from Syria, Moab, the people of Ammon, the Philistines, 
from Amalek. Of course, all these aren't even recorded here. The Bible just gives us a summary. From the spoil of Hadadezer, the son of Rahab and king of Zobah. So again, just describing all these different victories and as David collecting spoils of war, notice David doesn't just amass all this for himself. It says he took these things and he dedicated them back to the Lord. Now, I think there are two purposes for this. First of all, this was just David's way of acknowledging, you know what? I would not be winning one battle if it wasn't for the good hand of the Lord. These victories are not coming from me. And David understood if the Lord wasn't preserving me, if the Lord wasn't prospering me, if the Lord wasn't helping me and giving me victory over my enemies, I wouldn't be conquering anything. And I would be an utterly defeated man. And David knew this. In fact, around this time, David wrote Psalm 60. And listen to what he says in Psalm 60, verse 12. He says, through God, we will do valiantly. For it is he who shall tread down our enemies. So David understood where the victory came from. That it wasn't from him. It wasn't from his resources. It was from the God with whom he trusted in and the God who was with him, that it was by God's power and help and assistance that he was having these victories. So David, in a responsive way, says, Lord, so all, all, the, all the praise, all the glory, all the, the stuff that was acquired, the spoils, it all belongs to you, Lord. And he just dedicates it back to the Lord as an expression of worship towards him, no doubt. And again, this should be our heart in our lives. I love what Paul says writing to the Corinthians there in 1 Corinthians 15 as he's talking about the resurrection of Christ and the power of the resurrection. He says, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, understanding that, that victory isn't something we technically achieve on our own. Victory is something we receive we receive victory. We engage obediently. We take steps of faith and say, Lord, I will walk in faith, believing your word, do what's obedient. But when we walk in faith and obedience, it's the power of God that brings the victory. It's the power of God that enables us to conquer enemies in our lives and subdue things that maybe were once controlling us and to take territory God wants us to have. And it's important that we give the praise and the credit where it's due. And that we render back to God the acknowledgement by our worship in whatever ways we would do such like David here. And another reason David dedicates this gold and silver and bronze, the precious metals, as we'll see going forward, is he's laying up provisions for the building of the temple. And remember, when David found out that God was not going to allow him to build the temple, but his son Solomon was going to build the temple... Because he was a man of war and had shed much blood. And so God had called Solomon to be the one to build the temple. David's attitude was phenomenal. And we'll see this as we go into the books of Chronicles as well, where it's recorded in greater depth. David's attitude wasn't, well, if I can't build it, then forget it. I'm taking my toys and going home. If I can't do I wanted to do that. That was my dream. David's attitude was instead, you know what, Lord? If you're pleased that it was in my heart, if I'm not the one you've called to do it, but you're calling my son to do it, and you're calling someone else who's within my sphere of influence to do it, then I'm going to do everything I can to get behind them, to empower them, supply them. And basically, if you look at what happens, David basically prefabs the whole temple. <laughs> he doesn't build it, but he supplies all the gold, all the silver, all the bronze, all the materials. He gives Solomon all the dimensions and the, the plans and he, he basically prefabricates the whole thing. The only thing he doesn't do is literally build the thing himself. 
And he basically says, God, I'll do everything I can anyway. I'll do everything you'll allow me to. And this wonderful attitude, this is why we see David in many ways fighting these battles to lay up the precious gold and silver and so forth that's needed to ultimately build this glorious temple for the honor of God that Solomon will construct. Well, verse 13 says, And David made himself a name when he returned from killing 18,000 Syrians in the Valley of Salt. And he also put garrisons or soldiers in Edom throughout all Edom. He put garrisons and the Edomites also became David's servants. And there's our statement again. And the Lord preserved David wherever he went. Didn't matter the circumstances. If he was walking in God's will, God preserved and sustained and prospered him, giving him the success he needed by God's help. Verse 15, so David reigned over all Israel and David administered judgment and justice to all people. So notice, you see David's reign was like, he wasn't just good in foreign affairs, at home domestically, he was a just king, he was doing what was righteous in his administration and judgment, he had godly people around him as his counselors, and here we get a reference, verse 16 to 18, to some of David's cabinet members. Notice he put people in place who were enabled with skill and ability in some ways to help him with his administration. Verse 16, Joab, the son of Zariah, who we've already seen much of, he was over the army, so he was sort of the guy department of defense, if you would, uh, secretary of defense. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder, and that was a very important position uh, in that day. The recorders typically kept sort of documentation of thoughts and ideas that the king would have and discuss to kind of keep those things on the agenda and kind of help guide the schedule and, and refresh the memory of the king of things he's been talking about and things he's proposing. Uh, verse uh, 17, Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were priests. These were two godly men. David always had godly spiritual counselors around him as well, which greatly helped his administration. Sarahiah was the scribe, or we might say that would in our day today kind of be like the secretary of state. So again, another very important position this man was in. And then Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, was over both the Cherethites and the Pelethites. Now, the Cherethites and the Pelethites, as we've seen before, these were kind of like David's personal bodyguards. Uh, they were kind of like the ancient secret service, if you would. These were David's men. They were skilled warriors. They were like the Navy SEAL, Green Beret, incredibly gifted uh, men who were David's personal bodyguards. And Benaniah was the chief over this personal bodyguard that kept the king safe. And David's sons also, it says, were chief ministers. So they also were involved in the administration. Now, all of David's sons did not turn out real well. Uh, but I think David, as a king, is recognizing, you know what? The potential of one of you taking over the throne is very real. So I think this is just David investing in the younger generation here, that he's having his sons be involved as his advisors in his administration, helping prepare them uh, so that one of them ultimately would take over the throne because he knows he will have someone from his family line sitting on the throne according to God's promise. Now, chapter 9, not a real long chapter, but is this beautiful chapter, I want to encourage you as we read through it together, of a story of David showing God's kindness to one of the descendants of Jonathan, his close best friend who's died, remember, in battle, the son of Saul, Jonathan. But as we go through this, it probably is very obvious in the cursory reading, but I just want to encourage you as you look at it, 
to be thinking about how it's a beautiful picture of how God shows kindness to us in our weak, unworthy condition by showing his kindness to us as the king of kings in offering us salvation. There's in many ways a very beautiful picture, a portrayal in, in a typological way as we look at this picture of, of David doing this. And what David's going to do now is, is show this kindness uh, and it's a beautiful picture of the kindness of God shown to us in our salvation. It says, verse 1, Now David said, Is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, what David's referring to here, as we said, remember, King Saul hated David, remember, tried to assassinate him, ruin his life. But Jonathan, the son of Saul, and David became like close Brothers, I mean, they were the closest of comrades and friends. And they just had this kinship, this incredible devotion to one another as two men that, that just really formed this strong bond between them. So much so that Jonathan knew that God was going to be removing his father and that he even wasn't going to assume the throne, but that David was the anointed of God and would ultimately become the king. And Jonathan even wanted and longed one day to look forward to being next to David submitting himself to David as the next king of Israel ruling under him. Of course, that got cut short because Jonathan died in battle. But back in 1 Samuel chapter 20, Jonathan asked David to maintain a covenant between the two of them, despite what happened. Let me just refresh your memory. These were Jonathan's word many, many years ago. Jonathan said to David, and you shall not only show me the kindness of the Lord while I live, that I may not die. In other words, don't kill me when you come to the throne because I'm a, a descendant of the, the prior kingdom, king, but you shall not cut off your kindness from my house forever. No, not when the Lord has cut off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth, a lot like we read in chapter 8. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, let the Lord require at the hand of David's enemies. And Jonathan again caused David to vow because he loved him. And he loved him as his own soul. So there was this covenant that was made between David and Jonathan. In essence, Jonathan was saying, David, listen, one day you're going to be the king and God's going to cut off all your enemies. And the way it typically works is when someone would come to power culturally, you would assassinate all of the descendants left alive from the previous administration because you never wanted anyone from that prior family line that was the king to raise up and to revolt and to try and reclaim the throne so culturally you would kill everyone so jonathan's saying listen david i want to reign with you you are the rightful king and and so to please don't not only take my life but please don't ever cut off your kindness to my family and david made a promise to him now fast forward here we are many many years later jonathan's died David's on the throne. God's prospered him. God's established him. He's defeated all his enemies. And David is now, for whatever reason, he's moved with this sense of kindness and compassion and curiosity. He says, hey, is there anybody left in the house of Saul that I can show kindness to for Jonathan's sake? Thinking about that promise that he had made to Jonathan. And notice he wants to show kindness for Jonathan's sake. It has nothing to do with the person he was going to show grace and kindness because of who Jonathan was, not who the person was. And again, as I said, do you begin to see the picture here? God shows us kindness for Jesus' sake. God is the one who's moved that says, 
I'm looking for people on this earth who I can show my kindness and mercy and grace to for Jesus' sake. And God initiates. God's looking for us. The Bible says we only love him because he first loved us. And here, the king is the initiator. It's not one of the descendants going to the king. It's the king who wants to be kind to people. The king wants to be merciful. And he wants to show grace and kindness just like God does with us because of Jesus' sake. Verse 2, And there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. So when they called him to David, the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, At your service. That's always a good response when a king asks you a question. At your service, king. Let that be our heart towards the king of kings. At your service, Lord. It's a great way to start every day. Then the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul to whom, notice, I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. Now, Word comes to David now. In fact, there actually is one descendant of Jonathan, your friend, that's still alive. We're going to see shortly here. We know who this is. This is Mephibosheth. And we saw back in chapter 4 how Mephibosheth became lame in his feet. When word came from the battlefield that King Saul and Jonathan had been put to death, It says that Mephibosheth was about five years old, a young boy, and his nurse or nanny, whatever, picked him up and began to run with him because she's thinking, oh my goodness, he's one of the last descendants. They're going to just come and assassinate him too. And as she's running with him to flee, somehow she drops him and the boy sustains an injury. Whether he broke his back and that caused him to be lame or paralyzed, whether he broke his legs and then they just weren't healed or set properly and as a result now he was lame and crippled the rest of his life. Something happened in his life as the result of a fall, he became lame. As a result of a fall, he's in a paralyzed condition that he can't change. Sound familiar? As a result of a fall in the Garden of Eden, we're now in a paralyzed condition that we can't change or help ourselves with and we're stuck in this condition of sin as a result of the fall that happened in the Garden of Eden and we're now in a condition where we cannot change it ourselves. There's nothing that we can do unless someone else is merciful and gracious to us and God helps us. Our our sin paralyzes us in that condition. He says, there is still a son of Jonathan, lame in his feet. So the king said, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, indeed, he's in the house of Mekir, the son of Amiel and Lodabar. And Lodabar, interesting, means no pasture or in a barren place, in a place of emptiness and a place where there's no fruitfulness. And the king sent and brought him out of the house of Mekir, the son of Amiel from Lodabar. Now, when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face and prostrated himself. Now understand, this is not just humility alone. He's terrified. (laughs) Because Mephibosheth knows how culture typically works. You assassinate all the prior descendants and he's been thinking, man, I've been hiding out in Lodabar and this guy's not found me yet and I can't even run because I'm lame. What am I going to do? And now he's you know, hey, the king is looking for you. He wants to, and he's now brought, he has to be carried there and he's carried to the king and he's put before the king and he's thinking, I am a dead duck. What am I going to do? Unless he has mercy on me, my life is dead. 
And he has a tremendous fear. There's this sense of overwhelming fear because he realizes that he could potentially be under the wrath of the king. And so he falls down prostrate. The fear of the, uh, of the king grips his heart, even as any person who realizes their own condition of sinfulness, the fear of God should grip their heart and they should realize their tremendous, desperate condition. He prostrates himself and David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, here is your servant. Look what David said to him, do not fear, for I will surely show you, this must have blown his mind, kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake, and will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. So David announces to him, listen, you don't have to be afraid. I didn't call you to destroy you. I don't want to condemn you and, and, and destroy you. In fact, I want to be kind to you. I want to show the kindness of God to you. And more than that, I want to restore back to you everything you've lost. I want to graciously give to you back all of the land and everything that was lost from your heritage of Saul, your grandfather, and you're going to eat bread at my table. You're going to be treated like a king's son the rest of your life. You're going to eat bread at my table continually. The mercy, the, the grace, the kindness being shown by David to this unworthy recipient who's unable to do anything to contribute or to make himself worthwhile. So he bowed himself and said, what is your servant, verse 8, that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? Now again, we have to understand the language in that day. Honestly, first of all, let me say this. Dogs were not pets. That's a modern thing that goes on. In that day, nobody had a domesticated dog. Dogs were unclean animals that were scavengers with diseases that roamed the streets and tried to steal scraps that were anywhere they could find them. So if you wanted to call somebody a curse word, you'd call them a dog. That was like, that was like a nasty curse word. So what's worse than a dog? A dead dog. So, so when he says here, I'm a dead dog, you have to understand, this is self-deprecating speech. He is basically saying, I am the lowest of the low. I'm, a, I'm just a dead dog. I'm not even worth being a dog. I am so unworthy. I'm so worthless. And there's just this incredible sense of unworthiness that comes over him, this sense of, of humility as he's there in the presence of the king, that he finds himself completely humbled in David's presence, not just because of who he is, but the fact that David's saying, I don't want to destroy you. I want to be kind to you. And I want to bless you. And I want to restore things that have been ruined in your life. I want to restore back good things to your life and, and bless you. And, and you're going to now be in a privileged, honored place and be like one of my sons, a king's son the rest of your life. And realizing who he is in this in a sense, way of just complete humbling of himself, he falls before David, calling himself this, recognizing he's just overwhelmed by it. And the king then called Ziba, the servant, and said to him, I have given to your master's son all that belonged to Saul and to all his house. So you, therefore, and all your sons and servants shall then work the land for him and bring in the harvest that your master's son may have food to eat. So he sets up a, a, you know, a, a situation where Ziba the servant would work the fields for Mephibosheth now and, and bring in provisions so he would always be provided for. And Mephibosheth, your master's son, however, he's going to eat bread at my table always. 
And Ziba had 15, it says, sons and 20 servants. And Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king has commanded his servant, so will your servant do. As for Mephibosheth, the king said, he shall eat at my table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth also had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who dwelt in the house of Ziba were servants of Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth, notice, dwelt in Jerusalem, for he ate, you notice the repetition, he ate continually at the king's table, and he was lame in both of his feet. So notice the Holy Spirit wants to continue to keep impressing this idea of here is someone who is in the lowest of low condition, and now he's in the most favored condition. He's now eating at the king's table continually not just like a not, not just a blessing okay look we're gonna have you over for a special dinner i mean i owe something to jonathan so one time come over and okay we'll you know bring you in and let's have a little mercy and compassion and you know you have had an injury you're handicapped and so we're gonna give you a nice meal and merry christmas and go back to load the bar now but instead it's constant access continually every day he's eating the king's delicacies being treated like a prince like one of the sons of the king every single day. And again, as you look at this story, as I said, this is such an incredible picture in a very faint way of what God does for all of us. We're like Mephibosheth. We're like Mephibosheth. And, and God is the initiator. God's the one that's moved with love and kindness. Titus chapter 2, verses 4 to 7 describes, says to us that we're in this horrible condition. It says, but when the kindness... And love of God our Savior appeared towards men. And then it describes how we were saved. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but by what Jesus has done for us. So again, God's the initiator in salvation. He searches out us. And God shows us kindness for Jesus' sake. Again, it's because of Jesus. It has nothing to do with my worthiness. Mephibosheth wasn't worthy of, of this. It wasn't that he had done something to earn good graces. Okay, well, if he can do enough things, maybe I'll let... Mephibosheth did nothing. Wait a minute, he did do one thing. He believed. And he just received all the grace by faith that David wanted to show him. And he just received it by faith, the grace of God that was being shown to him, even as we do the same. And how persistent was David? Where is this guy? Find him, go get him. And all these, go, um, go get him. And, and, and I look at this and I think, is that not a picture of what God does too? God is so persistent in wanting to save people. And he asks this and he does that and he, he go get this person. And God coordinates all these things and it's different in all of our lives, right? Think of how persistent God was to track you down and to use this person in that situation and, this, and, and whatever it took to get you in his presence, to get you to the place where he could show you his love and grace and mercy and kindness. And again, much like Mephibosheth, our condition, as we talked about, is, is really bad. Just like Mephibosheth, as a result of the fall of sin in the Garden of Eden, we are all weak and unable to change ourselves. We are sinful and depraved, the Bible says. We can't change ourselves. We are sinners headed to hell and we are powerless to change ourselves, save ourselves, do anything. And we're living in a barren, empty existence in our own load to bar. Nothing good really coming from our life. Well, we may think there's some good things, but we know at the end of the day we're empty we're living in a way that's below our intended purpose. And on the inside, we are fearful and concerned because we know things are not right in our life. And we're kind of just living and hiding 
like, like Mephibosheth does. We're kind of just hiding out and we're, we're always concerned and looking over our shoulder. And God, like David in this picture here, is merciful and compassionate and he shows us grace and we come to him in the condition that we are and he just takes us just as we are with all of our flaws and our weaknesses and our failures and he extends us access to the throne and he restores things in our life that were lost and ruined in our lives. And he allows us to have continual promises of his provision. And he indicates that he wants us to be in his presence and have fellowship. And he invites us to his table continually. He makes us sons and daughters of the Most High God. And like Mephibosheth here, you notice in the end of verse 13, it says he dwelt in Jerusalem. And he ate continually at the king's table. And he was lame in both of his feet. That pictures their continual dependence upon King David. And let me say something. That is exactly what place the Lord wants to bring us to. He wants to save us initially. But then he wants us to live in constant dependency upon him as our king. That we would just live close to him and live in a state of dependency. And again, this beautiful illustration here given to us in the Old Testament, maybe one of the best we have of the salvation of God displayed through David's kindness shown to Mephibosheth. It makes me think of 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, where it says this, Behold, what manner of love that the Father has given unto us that we should be called children of God. And you could take that verse and take a walk with it, and every word can just really mess you up. Behold. Think about that. Think about it. What manner of love that the Father has given to us, because I know who I am, that we, you, can you believe that? You, of all people, you're a child of God, favored, blessed. Your condition changed by the kindness of God being shown to you. What a marvelous thing. Let's bow our heads and pray together.